Gabriel Nathan, Executive Director, OC87 Recovery Diaries. To start, can you tell me a little bit about your own mental health journey? Sure. Um, I live with anxiety and depression and uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies. Uh, I guess there was some discussion uh, early on in therapy about obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and that was kind of toyed around with for a little bit and then ruled out, or I guess downgraded, if we want to look at mental health as stratified, um, as just having those tendencies, those obsessive compulsive tendencies, which manifest in some fun ways. Um, but I, uh, I wasn't formally diagnosed until, well, I first started going to therapy in college and then, um, took a little break after college because I couldn't afford therapy. Um, and then I started going again, in 2010, I had just started working at a locked inpatient psychiatric hospital. And I knew after a couple of weeks on the job that I wasn't going to make it there unless I was seeing a therapist. So uh, I went back to therapy and I have not stopped since. Um, still with the same guy. Um, and that's that's been my like formally diagnosed therapy or mental health journey um, with a, a professional. I've known that I've needed help since I was a kid, um, since I was a little boy, um, very, very anxious kid, um, worried about everything under the sun, um, exposed to the news. I was watching the news all the time uh, as like a six and seven year old, eight year old, which is probably not great. Um, but was very worried about crime, was very worried about disease, very obsessed about my parents dying, uh, you know, um, forcing myself to stay awake all night because, you know, bad things happen at night. Um, and so I want to, it was constantly like in a state of hypervigilance, needed to stay awake, needed to stay awake, needed to be ready for whatever I thought was going to happen to us. Um, and, you know, I tell this story a lot and it always makes, uh, I worry that it makes my mother seem like an asshole, but I did come up to her as a little boy. I guess I was eight or nine or 10. And I said, um, I need to talk to someone. And uh, I said, I think there's something wrong with me. And she said, Gabriel, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. And uh, I was not fine. Um, but I took that as if there is something wrong with you, you don't talk about it. Like, because I tried and that's, that's how it went. And so I just didn't talk about it anymore. Um, I continued all the same behavior and others started sprouting up, but that was the narrative that I was fine and nothing was wrong. And um, it wasn't until I went was in college and I had autonomy that I could go see someone on my own. I didn't need my mother's permission, didn't need her to drive me to therapy or whatever, um, that I started going. So after that, what inspired you to help other people tell their own stories? Um, 
So OC87 Recovery Diaries was around. I didn't found it. Um, It was in existence since 2013. And um, I... When I found OC87 Recovery Diaries, I was working at the psychiatric hospital. I worked there for three years on the unit with the patients. And in the last two years I was there, I was in administration, um, community outreach, development, fundraising, uh, that kind of thing. And so I was looking around for resources, um, either to seek grants or to learn about different mental health resources in the community, And I learned about this online storytelling platform called OC87 Recovery Diaries. And the founder, Bud Clayman, and I I was reading about him, and he and I shared a lot of similar similarities. (laughs) We were both mentally ill, first of all, Um, both Jewish, uh, both um, from the main line area of of the Philadelphia area. both of us very into writing and creativity. Um, and you know, I felt like this kind of kindred spirit with this guy. And so I met him and, and we became friends. And um, then I started working for him part-time while I was still working at the hospital. I was working at OC87 Recovery Diaries as a part-time essay editor. So I would get an essay from someone from somewhere in the world uh living with a mental health challenge and i would edit it and i have a background in writing and editing and um i've been a writer for a very long time um and i loved the idea of marrying creativity and storytelling with mental health um because it, it sounds cliche and corny but like we all have a story to tell and as i learned as a child not everybody wants to or not everybody wants those stories told um and a, the, you know my mother is from a different generation um where you don't talk about xyz q and every letter in between but that's changing and there are people who want to talk and who want to tell their stories and share their experiences and what i learned somewhere along the way is that that helps people feel not alone Um, because the biggest lie that mental illness tells you is that you're crazy and everyone else is fine (laughs) and you know you're fucked you're fucked up and you're the only one who's ever felt like this and you're aberrant and weird and you belong in a locked room or in the corner or whatever when really there's millions and millions of people going through very similar things to you. And some of them are in West Africa and some of them are in Ireland and some of them are in India. And, and, you know, um, it's really um, this kind of work, I think really helps people feel not so isolated and not so um, like, I'm, I'm God, I'm the only one you're not. Um, so that's, you know, that's why. That's huge. I know for me, when I'm interviewing people, I feel like I am not alone because I live with a bipolar disorder too. And I always think when I first was diagnosed, I'm the only one and I can't see any videos or anything of other people going through it. 
And that's exactly, you know, now you guys do tons of videos and, and I'm trying yeah. to do whatever I can to help people. So how important is it for people to see these videos to know they're it, not alone? To me, it's vital. And to me, it's even, you know, I don't want to speak hyperbolically, but to me, it's, it's suicide prevention yeah. um, because you know, suicide is very complex and it's very multifaceted and, and it, it occurs for a lot of different reasons for every single person who takes their own life and everyone who contemplates it or attempts it. But one of the contributing factors to suicide is that isolative feeling um, that whether you're going through a personal crisis, your home is being foreclosed on, your spouse is leaving you. Um, or you have a serious and persistent mental illness, all of those things can feel, A, like the sky is falling down, and B, like it's falling down on you, and um, and that no one else has ever felt like this, and no one else has ever gotten through anything really terrible, right? Our organization puts forth one essay every single week and one professionally made documentary film a month, profiling people who have come out of the other side of really horrible things. Um, we did a series of films um, about gunshot survivors, uh, some of whom uh, have quadriplegia now. Their lives are completely upside down uh, after being hit in the spine with a bullet. But they are part of an emotional support group of you know, young men of color who are also gunshot wound survivors who are gaining strength from each other and so that's five people in a room, right? But then we make a film about it and we put it up on YouTube. And then it's someone's Googling, you know, gunshot survival or looking up that up on YouTube because they've been shot and they don't know how they'll ever get through this. And they see one of those films and it's like, oh my God moment. Like if, if it can happen to them, it can happen to me, of course, you know, the, the actual situation, the wounding. But the the getting through it yeah. is happening to them, and it can also happen to you. Um, it can also happen for you. And it's the same thing with people living with bipolar, living with schizophrenia, living with addiction. Um, these stories have the potential to help save lives um, because it re they really dispel that myth that I can't, there's no possible way I can get to the other side of this. Um, and, and the people we profile in documentary films, the people who write these essays, they have gotten through the suicide of loved ones. They have gotten, they're living with their serious and persistent mental illness. They're living with hearing voices. Um, they're, they're living, they've lived through homelessness, all of these things that seem insurmountable. That's why we call them stories of mental health empowerment, uh, and change. You know, they're, they're, they're all of those things. And hope also. Have you seen more people willing to open up since you first started doing this? Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, our, our submissions have increased significantly. Um, and what I've also noticed is, so we, we have a policy where um, a lot of mental health storytelling platforms and i'm certainly not going to pretend we're the only one like there's there's other people doing similar things to us i think we do it better but anyway <laughs> um 
Other, other sites will allow you to publish either anonymously or as like, if I submitted an essay, I could submit it as Gabriel N or, uh, or make up a pseudonym, uh, you know, a completely different name. We do not allow that um, at OC87 Recovery Diaries. We mandate, and, and from the very beginning, we have said, if you're going to come to us and you're going to publish a story about your mental health, you have to publish under your real full legal name. And we want pictures of you to intersperse through your essay. Um, none of this Gabriel N shit, like we want you to come to us as you are, because if you insist on anonymity, if we give you anonymity or we give you a pseudonym or allow you to publish with your first name only or whatever, we are perpetuating a stigma that there's something to be ashamed of. There's something to hide from mm -hmm. uh, simply by telling us as part of your own life. Um, and that would be very wrong of us, um, I think, to perpetuate that. Um, we don't want to be communicating the message that there's something wrong with you writing an essay about having bipolar disorder, right? Or being a suicide attempt survivor or whatever. So what I noticed in the beginning was that when that would be made clear to authors, a significant amount would be like, uh, you know what, JK, I'm out of here. Uh, and they would roll. Um, increasingly, when I let people know that, you know, we require your whole, full, whole name and all of that, they're like, great, let's roll. Let's do it. Um, that is changing. Uh, and I love that. I, I think that's really, really great. Um, because there is nothing to be ashamed of. And if down the road, you're applying for a job and some HR person or some supervisor Googles your name and finds your essay on OC87 Recovery Diaries and doesn't want to hire you because of that, fuck them. Yeah. Uh, good. Like you dodged a bullet as, as a, the author of that piece because you don't want to work for a piece of shit like that anyway. So better you find out, you know, while they're hiring you and they're looking you up and all of that stuff. Um, it, that's what I tell people. Like, this is going to be online forever. Um, so people are going to find you, potential lovers, uh, you know, people, everyone's Googling everyone. Like, they're going to find your essay and, and be prepared for some reactions to not be nice. But, like, better to know that, I think. Um, so... I feel like more and more people aren't as afraid. Um, and I think that's great because that's how stigma changes. That's how that gets erased by people saying, I don't have anything to be ashamed about. You want to shame me for having a mental illness? That sounds like more your problem than yeah. mine. Yeah. If we're all still hiding under fake names and anonymity and this and this, and this then it's perpetuating the idea that we need to hide and we don't. That's kind of like when I first when I first was diagnosed uh, when I was 37, so about four years ago, diagnosed with bipolar disorder too. And I'm like, aha, I feel good. And then my work, you know, human resources says, well, if you tell other people, that makes them feel uncomfortable and all that. So then I'm back to hiding. So what you said with the job and coming forward, it it does change your life. If people are uncomfortable, it's probably because they're uneducated. 
or they saw an episode of a TV show made 10 years ago where someone had bipolar and they were ripping their clothes off and running around the neighborhood naked in the middle of winter. And that's what they think bipolar is. Um, you know, so we have all these fucked up ideas that are not challenged. Um, and uh, a lot of people are very uneducated uh, and, you know, until they need to be. And that's also part of the work that our essays and our films do. They're educational, but they're not educational in a way of like someone in a suit standing in front of a PowerPoint going, all right, this is what bipolar one is. And this is what bipolar two is. And they're beautiful and creative works, but the education that they're doing is showing you that these are human beings. These are human beings like you, like me, um, but they're just trying to get by They're They've got an illness. They're managing it. It's manageable, curable. No manageable. Yes. Um, and that's, that's the education that people really need. I feel. Well, with you helping so many people, giving them a platform, what do you do for your own mental health? Uh, not much. Uh, frankly, um, I'm a very poor, and I think a, a lot of people who work in mental health um, are not their their own best caretakers, and I'm certainly among them. Um, I, you know, I would be really blowing smoke up your ass if I was like, well, this is my wellness toolkit, and I have all these coping skills. I don't. Um, I, I really don't. Um, and I'm, I'm not super, um, I'm not super tuned in to how I'm doing, um, on a day-to-day -day basis or even like hourly, um, or like I'll say things to my fiance, I'll be like, you know, I've, I, this has been like a really shit day and she'll be like, well, yeah, but what about, you know, this lovely thing that happened and this, my, my brain can really color um uh everything pretty dark pretty quickly so i don't have i don't have a great uh perspective a lot of the time so um you know i wish i had a better answer for you i, I mean i go to therapy once a month because that's what i can afford to do um so that's good um you know, I love my time with my children. They're lovely and silly and ridiculous. Um, but that's stressful too. Um, you know, I don't think there's a parent alive who would deny that. Um, but I just, I just try to keep it together. <laughs> and I'm really trying to, I mean, my God, after like 13 years of therapy, I'm starting to get better at applying things that I learn in there and take them out of the office and use them in my daily life. Um, the biggest thing for me is uh, not beating the shit out of myself. Um, and that's a constant, not judging myself and not um, being hard. Um on myself that's very difficult um and actually something that helps is the essays it's the writers it's the people in the films i learn from everyone uh on the site and 
they're wonderful company to keep. They're they're good for my brain, I think. Where do you want to see your mission, say, in the next three to five years? Oh, well, oh, I can get grandiose. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I, I would love if someone was like, oh, mental health storytelling, OC87 recovery diaries. That's it. They're the only, they're the only game in town that matters. Um, you know, when I... When I want to, like, I know someone at work who's been diagnosed with bipolar. Oh my God, I got to send them to OC87 Recovery Diaries, and and click on the the bipolar heading, and all these essays come up, and all these films. That's what I want. I want people to be like, this is the first thing I share when I know someone who's hurting when I know someone whose kid is having their first psychotic break in college, uh, when I know someone who just got fired from work because they had a manic episode and the boss freaked out, what well, I I want this to be on everybody's lips um, when they think of mental health storytelling. That that's that's what I want. I think it's a crime that we have made some of the most beautiful films that I, I know of on these subjects. And they have like a couple hundred views. That makes me crazy. Um, you know, when we put all this money and all this work and all of these fabulously talented filmmaking technicians, um, you know, and hours and hours and hours of, of editing, and then just people aren't seeing it. So, you know, I hope that people see our stuff and share it. Um, it's all free. It's all you can do. We don't charge a subscription, nothing. It's, it's just all here. Um, share it. Use it in trainings, uh, mental health training. We, we did a series of films called Beneath the Vest, um, which is all about first responder mental health. So we profile a couple of police officers, um, a 911 dispatcher. Nobody ever thinks about dispatchers when they're talking about first responders. They are literally the first because uh, yeah. they're, they're the first person. It's picking up the phone when you're calling 911. It's them. And they are traumatized. They have mental health issues. Um, we profiled a couple EMS providers and a, a volunteer firefighter. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police are using our films. Um, we have police departments, sheriff's offices in Florida, in New York, um, using our films to train first responders. That's what I want. That's what I want. <laughs>